Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. My next guest is Zach Obron. Zach built Scribe Media along with his partner, Tucker Max, into something that was really unique and really original, which is a way for authors, business leaders, and creators to publish a book in a very professional way without having to use a traditional publisher. Scribe became a success seemingly overnight, but of course it was preceded by years and years of hard work. And it is now today, I think, the industry standard in that field. Zach, of course, could have just continued at Scribe and optimized and optimized and made it bigger and bigger, as I'm sure Scribe will become over time. But he did something different. He took a real hard left into a completely unrelated field, that field being Web3, crypto, blockchain, tech. And he taught himself how to code. And for anyone coming from arts and humanities, books and publishing, that sounds insane, um, as it did to me. But as you'll hear, Zach approached that with a very unique attitude and perspective that allowed him to take this on with curiosity and passion and an open mind that I think will lead him to ever new heights and uh, more interesting projects and fascinating places. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Zach Obron, thank you so much for joining me on the Burning Castle podcast. Uh, you have a really interesting vantage point on the topic of this podcast, which is a lot to do with creative independence and about tapping creative energies to improve the world around you. Um, that's partly because of um, your role at Scribe, which we'll talk about. And also I think some of uh, what you're doing right now in the Web3 space. So, you know, Scribe is, Scribe is a very unique company. Um, I, so let's start with that. Let's start, like, just give people a little bit of a background about what Scribe is, how you got to that, that idea, that model, um, and what it what its significance is. Yeah. So, I guess I, I started Scribe just as a quick background about eight years ago, and the the problem we kept running into before then was uh, my business partner Tucker and I had been doing kind of like one off publishing help for like an author's in a weird situation. It's kind of early self publishing days. Hey, how do I figure this out? I've got these things from traditional. How do I replace them? And so we'd kind of been helping in a, in a one off way. And what we kept running into was this weird problem where like if somebody was traditionally published and needed help with a slice of something, you could assume the infrastructure all around it was going to work at least okay. And then our slice would plug into that infrastructure and work great. Mm -hmm. And then we'd work with people who are self-publishing and that assumption went out the window, right? So it was like, someone would say, oh, I need your help with marketing. And our assumption from the years of doing this was like, oh, marketing, we know your book is going to 
be readable and have a cover that's not designed in Microsoft Word and all that. And all of a sudden there were people who were making mistakes on all the things surrounding what we were doing. And with a book, everything's so intimately tied together that you can't really do one piece well and make up for another piece. And so we found ourselves on the, with marketing as an example saying, we need to go back to the beginning and think about the positioning of the book. We found ourselves with uh, with editing being like, well, the premise of this is off, so there's not really a way to edit it, or you haven't really got clear on your voice, or all these things that were all uh, interwoven. And so uh, just kind of by luck in the middle of all that, there was something we'd been frustrated about. And a woman, I think Tucker met her at this dinner, and she was complaining, saying, I, I want to go this self-publishing, or I don't even know where to start. I'm going to probably just take a deal because I don't I don't even want to understand the frame of like what decisions I need to make. And I chatted with her a bit and decided like, Hey, why don't we just try to do this start to finish rather than doing a slice? Um, so I got to work with her right at the very beginning to say like, what is the book you want to write and then help on the uh, like outlining and structuring side. And then with the writing and then the design and the marketing all the way through start to finish. Uh, and it was so much more fun and so much easier and so much more rewarding that like when the book was finished, we felt like, Oh, we really had a part in making this, not just doing a piece. Um, and it, so she, this, so like, this woman yeah. had a deal. She had an offer from a publisher. I believe so. Yeah. And she decided she, she wanted to go, um, self-publish anyway. Yeah. I don't, I, so this is, this is 2014. So I don't remember the exact details, but my memory is, so she's a woman, she's in the pop-up retail space. And my memory was that she, that speed was a really big priority for her. Like she mm -hmm. didn't, she was writing right. with things that were pressing for 2014. She didn't want to be on this longer timeline. Right. Um, and especially there was media stuff that she needed to line up with her business. It was just like, Hey, I don't want to go with that whole model. Yeah. Um, and for, for people out there, a traditionally published book, you're looking at 18 months, um, minimum from the time your contract is signed. So, right. you know, if you haven't signed the contract, you're talking two years, which right. is a long time, two years. And especially the challenge for a lot of people is like two years where the first six months there's the uncertainty whether it's even going to happen. Right. Uh, and so you end up in this trap and then that's assuming you're writing and hitting your deadlines and there's not delays because of the paper shortages that have been happening and all this stuff that's, that's slowing people down. So um, yeah. So, so working with her, we kind of stumbled into it backwards. You know, we were like, Oh, this is, this is more fulfilling and saves us from a lot of these headaches. But what we realized pretty quickly is the difference between self-publishing and traditional publishing, even at that point, it wasn't, the actual activities going into it, right? It wasn't like you could get better designers with traditional publishers. The same designers were freelance. It wasn't mm -hmm. that you could get better editors. All that was already true. It was the frame of having someone who had done it over and over saying, here's, we're going to walk you through it. You do your part. We'll make sure that it keeps moving forward. And so as time went on with Scribe, we got clearer and clearer that what people needed was the full kind of support that a traditional publisher provides but not necessarily the business model of the bureaucracy or all the other things around it. And so that's kind of where, where Scribe is today, where I would see it as in a lot of ways better, but at least comparable in terms of the specifics of what Scribe does versus what a traditional publisher does. But everything's based on the model of the author is the customer. We're focused on the author's goals. We're a fee for service rather than taking a percentage of book upside, which leads to, uh, it's actually, I'll, I'll go into it a bit because I think for your audience, it's interesting. At first, I always thought like that seems like it should misalign incentives. You know, like you want you want everyone's incentives aligned on the same upside. And what we realized is for so many authors, the upside isn't 
money earned from book sales. It's everything around that. It's like impact and reach and maybe other business opportunities and future books and interesting connections. And if, if, what you're, if the incentive you're aligning is how much money the book makes from sales, that's actually misaligning what people want. And so we found we could do a lot better job honoring what authors needed if we started with, great, you're a customer that we want to make happy. What are your goals? And now let's stay focused on your goals rather than imposing this, make as much money on book sales as possible. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum because the publishing model, the traditional publishing model is something that grew out of like a, a bygone century. You know, the timelines, the way things are done, the protocols. Um, and for some people, it really still does work very well. But there's just a lot of people out there for whom it doesn't work. And I think a part of that, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot of these stories about um, performers, musical performers, artists who are buying back their masters. You know, this is like something you hear often. They want those rights back because the rights that I think there's a moral issue there. It's like who owns this thing? And there's a financial issue. Who's going to earn money on, on it in the long term? And I think that's another piece of it. It's just like my book, um, The Grey Lady Winked. I decided to go. I had an offer from a publisher. I decided to turn a great publisher. I turned it down actually for all of these reasons. I didn't feel that it was aligned because the publisher told me up front. I asked him, are you guys going to be doing marketing? He said, no, just no, like not, we're going to be doing a little, no. Great publisher on. to be honest about it. <laughs> he's an honest guy. I, I respect him, but he's like, and then I'm like, well, so what are you doing exactly? And this is the thing he's doing all the stuff that I could do in my case, I could do myself, but for anybody else now, exactly what you're saying, you've got incredible designers. You've got amazing editors who are freelance. Like these are the top notch people. So, you know, what you guys have done is package it. And that's exactly what, what people are looking to do. But I think the deeper thing here, and this is something, I, you know, hopefully you can speak a little bit about, is the empowerment of creative independence. So someone doesn't say, please publish my book, Mr. Nice Publisher, like, please like me. They can say, screw this. I'm just going to do it myself. It's like, you just take that power for yourself because you have it. Is that something that you guys um, have found to be an effect of what you were doing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there are people who when they would ask that question or if we would have this conversation would be approaching it from like, almost seeing it as like, oh, is this a different gatekeeper? And like, oh, do you believe that the gatekeeper should be a little wider? Or, you know, like that it's very much with this assumption of like, a book needs to be this protected thing that only certain people are allowed to do. And, oh, you guys might approach that differently. And our perspective was the complete opposite. It was like a lot, a lot of the information flow of the world works well with no gatekeepers. Books don't need to be this separate thing. It doesn't need to be, have a, have like a, a someone approving that it's okay to be a book. Now, the things that we, so we, we struggled with this a lot over time saying like, well, where exactly do we draw that line? Cause we don't want to be publishing stuff that's complete crap. And we don't want to be like, that's not good for readers. That's not good for anyone. And so where we landed was our job is to make sure that whatever's coming out is the, is the best expressed version of the ideas that the author wants to get across. It's not our job to say, to curate which ideas we think are useful to get across. And so one of the symptoms of that uh, is that we found a lot more authors wanting to write pretty niche books, right? Because mm -hmm. 
with a traditional publisher, everything's oriented around book sales. And so, and to get the deal or everything, you've got to be trying to reach a wider audience because from the publisher's perspective, they're like, for every person who buys this book and kind of likes it, we're going to make 10 bucks. For every person who this changes their life, we're going to make 10 bucks. So like, it's all the same. Let's, let's touch as many people as shallowly as possible. For a lot of authors, that's nowhere near their mindset. Uh, and so we found a lot of people when they got into it, they said, oh, if I could sell a thousand or 2000 books to people who it's like the dream thing for, especially if they're also potential clients and whatever else, yeah, that's the book I want to write. And so I think there's this, this kind of natural thing that happens when we're not in a world where there's like this scarcity put on who can contribute what idea that all of a sudden people are serving the audience that they're best equipped to serve rather than this like artificially inflated audience that they can get away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you guys, I mean, you know, you're saying you have a lot of niche books and you've published um, tons or helped people publish, I should say a lot of books at this point, but you've also had some huge breakout books. I mean, I believe yeah. Goggins, David Goggins uh, yeah. can't hurt me. I mean, that was, one of the biggest books of the last few years is just immense and not only in its sales, but much to your point, much more importantly is to the impact that's actually right. changed people's lives. Totally. Right. And so I think that's, that's, what's interesting is like, that doesn't, I, I, I never want to jump to the conclusion of like, Oh, we're because publishers want people to reach a lot of books. If you're going to do the opposite, then it's got to all be niche. It's like, no, every author should just be doing the thing that meets their goals and helps readers as much as possible. And for some people that's Goggins, he happens to be someone who because of his goals would have been pretty well served with traditional publishers, right? Like that wouldn't have held him back or changed the book substantially. In his right. case, he had the calculus of, I don't want someone else to own my story. Exactly what you said. Like, no, this is my life. I don't get to just pump out another one. Like this is, this is my story. I don't want someone else owning the rights to that. And I want to bet on myself. Like when we publish a book, we don't take any of the upside. So for Goggins, I won't give exact numbers, but his earnings have been about 75 to a hundred times what he was offered from a traditional publisher. And he got a pretty, pretty decent starting offer. Uh, but he just said, I, I don't want to take the bet of giving up all the upside for a little cash right now. I, I think this book's going to do well. So, so I'm all in. Uh, and so those two things made sense for him. But for a lot of other authors, but, but I guess he kind of fits the model of what they would be pretty good at. Whereas for a lot of authors where they're saying, I've got this dream book that's going to reach the 1,000 people who are uh, currently the VP of technology at a Fortune 500 company trying to become the CTO and trying to bridge that skills gap. It's like, that's super valuable information to have in the format of a book, which is like a full A to Z kind of reference on how to how to accomplish some result often in a nonfiction book case, but it would never make it through the rest of the publishing system just because everything's oriented around what can reach big audiences. Right. Yeah. Goggins talks about that. Um, they did the audio version of the book where it's kind of, they have like, they kind of melded this podcast style with narration and they talk about it, how he was, he got a big offer. They actually said the number of the offer, which I think was about $300,000 which is a big, that's like a hefty advance um, for publishing, for traditional publishing. He said, no. And the, um, the co-author, I forget the guy's name, Adam something, um, was trying to, was pushing him to take the deal and got, it was Goggins who, who just didn't take it. And it was something instinctually that made him go in that other direction, which obviously turned out to be a good decision. Um, right. 
I think I think on Goggins, there's an interesting piece there as well, which is I, just because you mentioned the audiobook, because uh, we had then later the the kind of same process the other way around, where when he wanted to do the audiobook that way, my perspective was that's a bad idea. Like it just feels clunky. It's not really how audiobooks are done. I think it's kind of clever, but might just not really come out well. Uh, and so we kind of pushed back a little, but said this is kind of the different orientation for a publisher. It's no, that's not our process. Uh, for our model, it's like hey we talked to a bunch of people. Our recommendation is this probably won't work, but if you want to do it. And so this is testament to Goggins, both on not taking the advance and on saying, screw it, I'm, I'm doing that anyways. And the second I heard the recording, it was like, oh, you nailed it. You were right. hundred percent. Like there was no doubt once, so once we heard it. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, there's power in that, but like, I think a traditional publisher saying no to that would kind of have the mindset of like, who's this guy? He's a Navy SEAL. He's inspirational. He's written a great book. He doesn't know anything about audiobooks. Like we can dismiss his opinion because clearly he's wrong. Um, and I think it's kind of beautiful to see the really, the really like amazing creative decisions that can come out of people when they're given the opportunity to, to make those. Yeah. It also speaks to the question of who knows what. The question of expertise. You know, we've got this like broader conversation in the culture today about experts. Um, expertise equals authority that if you are, if you know something, and I just saw on um, a post you did, I, th I think it was a Substack post, it was the famous or infamous Paul Krugman quote about the internet, that the internet's going to be like the fax machine or something like that, uh, from 1996 or whatever. And he's like, in five years, 10 years, it'll be nothing. And this is, the, this is an economic expert, right? This is the, like the top of the pile and so completely embarrassingly, stupidly wrong. Um, and I think this is also what we're, we're dealing with, with this kind of decision-making to say, they don't necessarily know better than you. You know, it might, in some cases, it's also the opposite direction. And I think that's a valuable yeah. lesson to, for people out there to, to listen to say, you know, this, this notion of creative independence, you need to embrace the, the fact that you actually might know what you're doing. You're gonna make a thousand mistakes and you're yeah. going to learn, but at the at core, what you think is the right way might actually be the right way, no matter what somebody else tells you yeah. about it. I think there's a really interesting pattern in, in the things you're mentioning, which is what experts tend to be good at is knowing the like well-trodden route and like knowing they're, they're probably not going to make a mistake at the thing that's like status quo normal. Right. So right. Um, in the, in the case of like a, a Goggins book with the audiobook is like, they know that if you do a normal audiobook the way they always do it, they're not going to screw it up. So they're they're really good resources to turn to to say, I know nothing. Tell me the path that's not going to make a mistake. Uh, yeah. And even if you look at Krugman in 95, I actually have the perspective that it actually isn't that stupid. I wanted I, it seems so obvious in retrospect that like, oh my God, the internet's not going to be bigger than a fax machine. How silly is that? But the way I've been looking at it, especially in the contrast to Web3, is what does the internet do? it exchanges information between individuals. And it happens to do that in a way that's programmable, that is free, that's instant and fast. It has these, these things that you could almost see as like little perks. And that you would say, well, the fax machine does all those things. It's just a little slower. It's not programmable, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. And I think that's like a, a typical kind of like expert who's within the system view is like, wait, this isn't that different from what exists. It just has these extra things you uninformed person are just making a big deal about these extra things. You don't realize that it's fundamentally the same and nothing could really change. And what I think what those people are often missing is that like 
the things that seem like small things, especially in complex systems, like how humans interact with technology, it's hard to predict and extrapolate how much of a difference those like small things could make, right? So I would, I would say like in Web3, there's the exact same pattern going on right now where fundamentally what most of it is, is the ability to say, we already have ways to share ownership and things. The corporation, like there's, there's partnerships, there's, there's lots of ways to share ownership. All Web3 does is make it programmable, make it free, make it instant. Uh, and then it's easy to look at that and say like, oh, all you're doing is getting around laws, but it's hard to overstate how much those subtler things can change the way that humans interact when they're, when they're really able to coordinate at scale in, in a slightly different way. And so I think there's, there's just some similarity in all of these situations where it's like, if you're looking at things through the lens of like, how do things work now? This is the model of reality. Does something completely change my model of reality or am I going to try and stay safe and within it? Um, it, you come to a very different conclusion than trying to like really look at the big picture, which I think like outsiders and, and like people who are more creative tend to be a little bit better at. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it makes me think of a lot about um, innovation where you think what, what was the difference between Facebook and Friendster? You know, they're the same thing, right? It's a social network. Yeah. Facebook just did this one little thing differently, which made it, you mm -hmm. know, interactive and made it a thing that you could actually you could communicate with one another rather than just stare at someone's profile and that exploded the whole thing i mean it's like all it takes is that one little twist of usability of relevance to like personal relevance to somebody's life the same with google like what there were search engines out there what did google do that was so drastic that it changed the entire world it just it was just that little twist and, it, and yeah. it's kind of what you're saying about web three. So on that topic, you, you were um, kind of pretty openly exploring and still are, it sounds like web three and web three, meaning um, this new emerging frontier of blockchain and crypto based technology and um, modalities, ways of interacting, ways of doing thing, things that are rooted in crypto and blockchain technologies, but also in, in blockchain concepts. So where is that taking you right now? What are you thinking about? What are you finding out about that in terms of um, this, this intersecting world of creativity and, and publishing and media and all that stuff? Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, so much at its core, I think this whole space is about ownership. You know, I think there's, there's like, it's easy to get caught up in the like, here, here's the way I see it. And I'm sure a few, uh, many Bitcoin lovers will yell at me for this, but that I think like Bitcoin as a, as a technology and as a development was a huge breakthrough in saying like, this is a way that we can structure information in order to be fully decentralized and trustless. And then a lot of what's being built now is saying, let's take those same principles and apply them to other forms of information beyond currency. Uh, and I think when people are learning about this space, often they can get really focused on that decentralization piece. And I think when you're trying to look at the societal implications, decentralization is almost like talking about electricity with the internet or talking about uh, like TCP IP, or like some of these like foundational things that are crucially important. If you don't have them, nothing can get built on top of it. But once you have them, you can kind of say, okay, if, as long as I trust that, I can, I can take that for granted and start thinking about what's gonna be built on top of it. And so while 
like decentralization is a big piece of this and all of these other building blocks are a big piece. I feel like what all of it leads to is just this immense ability to share ownership in new and creative ways. And that we are just starting to scratch the surface of how that could be used, what that means, how that conflicts with existing laws and frameworks of how we see things. Um, and so, so all of, all of that is such a new area. And I think it's, it's, amazing to watch so, so my involvement with it i'm i'm mostly spending time on the technical side because i think we're in that early phase of this space where it's hard to understand what could be built without knowing without being in the weeds with it so i'm almost all my time is spent like coding and building right now um but i'm also spending some time kind of like dabbling involved in a few DAOs and involved in a few other kind of groups and protocols being built and it's it's really cool to watch people basically trying to reinvent, like, how does the, how should the corporation work, right? Like, what, how do we do this? And some of the things are, to me, seem like disastrous screw-ups. Like, hey, we have no leaders. Like, we need leaders or at least people who are informed across the organization to make decisions. And I think there's all kinds of stuff. Well, to let, let's, let's pause there so that people, when you say DAO, expand yeah. on, on exactly what that is. So, so DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And it's kind of grown to mean any any organization within the blockchain space. So so like by I think by strict definition, it's like all members own a voting right, and all decisions are made by by votes. In reality, things aren't done that way. And so um, there's kind of a range of decentralization from groups where uh, maybe owners share the economic interest in the thing succeeding, but there's a bit more centralization in decision making all the way to things that are fully decentralized kind of votes for everything. And what I see across that whole spectrum is just people exploring how work looks different when the, the lines between owner, employee, and user are all kind of blurred into one pile. And I think that's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it takes a while to shake out the implications of that, that when you're using, a, if you're using Facebook, then you're owning part of Facebook. And if you're owning part of Facebook, they're needing some work that you could work on you know, in order to earn even more. And you're able to do that. And all of these things are sellable in the open market so that when you're earning more ownership, you can choose how much of that you keep versus how much you take as, as US dollars or other, other currencies. So there, there's just all of these things that, are, that feel like this excitement and interesting kind of like bubbling up of possibilities. And I think- So the, the, con the concept there, the core concept is that you essentially- tokenize an organization, right? You're, you're exactly saying right. you can take 100% of an organization, break it up into as many little sort of representative pieces, and those pieces can be either sold or um, earned, like we, like we can earn Bitcoin through mining or through buying it. And you can, anyone can just own like one-tenth of one-millionth of some organization which is realistic right now, if I wanted to like own a piece of Facebook, I can buy some stock, but that doesn't make me a stakeholder. It just makes me a shareholder. It doesn't give me any control or power decision-making. Whereas in a DAO, theoretically it could, right? It could give me an ability yeah. to actually influence what's going on there in proportion to my, my stake. Right. So that's, that's for sure one piece, the ability to vote. But I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of public companies have at least some amount of shareholder voting. Um, the thing that feels more interesting to me is that that the like imagine that that Facebook as an example is able to 
do all of their all of their payroll, or at least a big portion of it, is paid in Facebook equity in like like tiny amounts, minute by minute. And mm-hmm. that all of Facebook is open source, and anyone can join their internal company Slack or Discord, and everyone anyone can look for how they can contribute. There there are all these things that each one isn't so different from some pre-existing structure, but when they all get mixed together, turns into this kind of like open ability to earn ownership in things you believe in uh, that, that is kind of hard to, because we don't know exactly where it's going to lead. It's hard to say, oh, this is exactly why that matters, but being in it, it's just so clear that it feels like a different way of working and organizing people than the structures that we're used to. And so it just feels like this fun exploration where I imagine in five years, there'll be a clear playbook. People will know the best way to run these and we'll have all the terminology. But for right now, it's kind of this playground where it can be frustrating that it's all over the place, but it's also uh, exciting that so many people are figuring out this this new way of working that seems to work for a lot of people. So, you know, you're hearing a lot about people talking about publishing books on blockchain. I saw a guy on Twitter, I forget who it is, but he was saying how for whatever ethical or political reasons, he, he decided to put his book on, on chain. And a friend of mine came to me recently and said, she wants to publish her book on chain, on the blockchain. And I said, uh, and she's like, what do you think? And I was like, okay, I guess, you know, what does that mean? And she said, I have no idea. And I said, neither do I. (laughs) So, so what does that mean? You know, in terms of like where all this stuff intersects with creativity and in specific um, publishing. Yeah. So, I've, I've heard rumblings of that as well. And when I've dug into it, it seems to me often to be more of a PR stunt than anything like publishing a book on chain. I don't, I can't see why that would make sense. I mean, if it's like an NFT is it's pointing to some external place you could, there's, there are immutable file systems that are, are based on similar technology that I guess, if you were worried that all versions of your book would disappear and you wanted one that was always there, uh, could be used. But I think the thing that's more interesting is not the the putting of a creative work on chain because for the most part those things aren't lost like we're, we're not worried about that the thing that's interesting is putting ownership on chain and so that's where right now you have no ability to buy a little bit of the upside of your favorite book or buy a little bit of the upside of your favorite song or right. uh, get really involved in supporting an author you care about and have them give you a little bit of the upside of the book or all of these possibilities or, or have authors be able to gather up their community of all the fans who have bought the book and maybe a subgroup of the fans who have invested in, in owning a piece and have direct access to all those people. Like there's all these possibilities that are more interesting when it's about ownership and community rather than just kind of like taking something that already exists and sticking it on the blockchain. Yeah. And that's another, you know, that, that's another one of these conundrums in, um, in not just publishing in all kind of creative endeavor, which is that it becomes the burden of the creator to be a creator and to be a marketer. Meaning they, they have 100% of that burden. Most times, even with a publisher, you have most of the burden because like I've said before, they don't do much. And this model, because your fans or your community members or customers, whatever you want to call them, are incentivized to help the book succeed or whatever the product is, they actually are um, able to contribute to that piece of making it a success, meaning getting the word out, spreading the word. And if you've got, you know, if you've got, let's say, a thousand readers or 5,000 readers of a book and 10% of them are 
all in and helping this book succeed because they want part of, they believe in it, but they also are incentivized properly. You've got a small army of people who are actually doing this with you, which is like a right. completely, one of the hardest challenges of doing anything creative, including publishing um, as an author or as a, whatever you are, is that you're alone. You feel completely alone. There's nobody with you. There's no one who you feel is really representing your interests. And I feel like this is the kind of thing where you've got this community of people who are with you, your team, or maybe even more than that. And I think that's a really exciting idea. Yeah. And there's this beautiful like separation that can happen where you've got your a thousand people there and maybe all a thousand are going to tweet or leave a review when the book comes out. And maybe a hundred of them think a little more deeply and are like, oh, actually, I can introduce Ashley to this person who has a podcast and that would add some value. And maybe you're able to reward those people with a little bit more stake. And then maybe you've got 10 who kind of become your inner team and one of them does the designs and one of them becomes your editor and one of them is project managing. There's this organic ability for community or users or customers to blend in with owners and, and employees that for for the, the areas of the economy, which especially I think creatives fall into that haven't had that seamlessly because they're not big enough to justify payroll and, and all that stuff. But, and they've ended up having to rely on external companies or, or, or teams to do all that stuff for them or they've had to do it themselves. And, and that's, that's, I don't think ideal. And especially if those teams can be built out of fans, there's, there's like kind of a magic synergy that can happen. Um, and from a fan's perspective, how cool is that? That's like, oh, what do, what do I want to do? I want to go find my three favorite authors, just be really helpful for them, believe in their books. And when their books succeed, I'm going to own a piece of it. That's yeah. like, it feels like there's this, this potential energy between those two groups that's just waiting to be unleashed. Yeah, I, I also think that in addition to that, that potential energy on the fan side, you know what, this, the big existential problem we're all battling today. I think a lot of it is loneliness. I mean, it always is, right? Human beings are all lonely. But you've got a fan who otherwise is out there on Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram, trying to feel less alone by getting likes or retweets, and it doesn't work. We we know that now. We're all just we've been engineered to basically work for these giant tech companies by clicking. Um, for hours at a time. But then you've got something else where you say, I actually believe in this thing. I believe in this piece of art. I believe in this book that someone's doing. I believe in this movement they're creating. And I can meaningfully participate in it in a way that makes me part of a community. So you have a sense of belonging. You also have um, a sense that you are actually a part of it, not just being used by someone to, to serve yeah. their agenda, but you are participating in a meaningful way. And I think that is the key. Um, because as you were saying, decentralization is a good concept. It's important. But the flip side of that is this inclusion that, that um, these technologies that are, are allowing and that they're creating this sense of bringing people in together and to do something. That's the thing. It's like, what am I doing with all this time in my day, these, these spare minutes or whatever? This is what people can begin to do. I think that's the real yeah. horizon. Right. Yeah, it is. It's so amazing. And it's interesting because you see it already where in this space, a lot of these communities, which I mean, sometimes are based around like having a shared profile picture and sometimes are based around something that's a little more values based are already pulling people's attention 
pretty effectively. And, and yeah. usually our chaotic discord groups that are really unmanageable and not well organized for, for community. And with all that, they're still pulling attention away from uh, what I would say are like more harmful, say social media platforms. But I think there's so much potential in thinking about, first off, what are the most values aligned communities you could get engaged with? And I think usually aligning around creative works is right up there in terms of finding the people that you connect most with and connecting around contributing and doing something as opposed to just consuming. There's like, and, and I think there will be developments in this space around how to make those communities more fun and engaging as opposed to kind of chaos that they, they can be right now. And with all of that, it's like, yeah, the, the, the possibilities long-term of where people focus their attention seems like there's a real possibility of that being more focused on things that are focused on creating and, and real community as opposed to just like consuming and, and being farmed for clicks. Yeah. Um, you said you were, you were starting to work on the technical side. Are, were you always technical? Are you like gearing up to, to learn how to code and, and to like dive into this stuff? Uh, so I've been on the side technical for maybe five or six years that I've, I've tried to squeeze it in, but never running a publishing company. It's hard to justify. I built a lot of the internal tools at Scribe and just like found my excuses, but never really could spend like full weeks on it. And beginning of last year took a sabbatical from Scribe to just go all in on, on focusing on tech. So the beginning of the year was actually more focused on AI, thinking that's where I was going to get more excited. And then once I dove into the Web3 stuff at all, it was clear to me that like this, there's, there's a lot more exciting unleashed, potential to unleash in this space. So yeah, I, I've, been, I've been focused on the tech of this side for, I guess, like eight months now and, and feeling relatively competent, maybe just starting to scratch the surface of competence. So how does it, like, how does that work in a practical sense? Like, how do you actually go learn like what do you do you know physically in your chair or are yeah. you a, are you going to university or college are you no. courses like how does that work yeah what i love in this space is none of that exists so like everyone's on the even playing field of like let's figure it out um you can basically think of of programming things for the blockchain as you need to write code that lives on the blockchain that is, is immutable and can execute some logic that might involve money or ownership and is rock solid security wise so that hackers can't access it and that kind of thing. And then the ability to write front end kind of like normal like JavaScript code that can interact with that effectively if you want to make an app that people are accessing from elsewhere. So a lot of my time early on was just deepening my skills in those two areas. Uh, if people are interested the best like one day place to start on the Ethereum side is Crypto Zombies. It's just like a one, probably four to eight hour tutorial that will just make like the basic concepts click. Uh, and then it's kind of, you gotta take charge up for yourself a little bit from there. Uh, but once I had those basics, it was just building a lot. So I worked on a few uh, NFT projects. I did a bunch of uh, stuff, just like prototyping different ideas on my own. Uh, I was actually, I've, I've shared this with you, but I'll, I'll share it here that I was going to start a company uh, that was kind of based around the ideas we're talking about for authors and other creatives to fractionalize ownership in their projects, sell it to their fans, build community around that. Decided not to do that because I want to go a lot deeper on the tech and that uh, that felt like going into uh, make something and have to focus on on making it a big thing publicly mode as opposed to the learning that feels more important right now. But I built a full prototype for that. So that was like a lot of learning of how things go to production. 
Um, and yeah, just, just a lot of doing has, and running into problems and solving them and eventually you start to recognize the patterns that you've seen over and over. So th this is a question um, that I've always had in the back of my mind with regard to uh, innovation and tech and business, which is, you know, the, the traditional model for a tech startup is that you've got a coder who has an idea and then writes the code, at least the initial, the prototype or has a partner and they do it together. Um, you sometimes have the opposite where it's just someone who has an idea and they find the tech person. What is the, what is the logic behind starting with the tech or starting as a technical person and building out for that, from that point, rather than starting out as like a, a domain um, specific expert who's saying, okay, I understand this thing. I have no idea how to code anything. Um, I'm just going to figure out the concept and find the tech. Yeah. If my goal was to start the most successful business possible as fast as possible, what you're saying is right. Uh, for me personally, I am, the answer is only like joy in my day-to-day -day life. Like I am far happier when I'm building things technically than when I'm leading a company. And I've learned that mm. over the past eight years of doing Scribe. That's just like, this is a skill that I've learned that I'm okay at now. And I can do if I need to but I'll do it if I need to in service of a mission, not because it brings me joy. Whereas the deepening technical knowledge and building brings me a lot more joy. And so for me, the main reason right now is if I start something now, I'm starting where my skills are 90, 10 business to technology, which means that's the role I'm going to fall into. And if I have more time to deepen my abilities on the technology side, then maybe when I go into building the next thing, I'm able to take on more of that role and do more of what I love. Uh, okay, that's interesting. So, um, what's what's your day like, generally? Oh, it depends. What? <laughs> uh, so, right now, part of an area that I didn't understand very deeply is the like mechanics of the mempool and like how transactions are actually processed by the blockchain. So, I just I found a project that would require me to know that deeply, um, and I've just been spending the past past few days building that. Uh, I've got a few open one of the things I really love is when people are curious about this space, especially people who are successful in other areas and they're having trouble kind of bridging the gap of like, what does this mean for the area I'm in? Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time talking to people like that, just kind of helping them think through it and figure out what that means. And occasionally from that, having a big breakthrough with them and then coming on for a little bit to support them with building some of the tech that they need to kind of bridge that gap. Um, so that I've got a few open projects that are, are those kinds of things. Um, one thing that's really cool in this space is like, I'm, I've always been very much the type of like, I love the starting of something new. And then I have to, I have to really care about the mission to stay focused on it. Cause I, I kind of have the shiny object thing. And what's fascinating in this space is like the, 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 the code that lives on the blockchain there's no maintenance it's built and it's done like you can't change it once it's there and so there's a lot of thinking and work that needs to go into making it perfect and then that role is kind of over and obviously companies build new things but um for a lot of people getting into the space they need what they need in that area is someone who really gets it and who, who gets their business and can uh, can kind of like make sure that it's done right the first time uh, so i've been having a lot of fun with with kind of helping people think through all that and then helping on the tech side where needed to help them build that out. So I'm, I'm all over the place. Uh, and after eight years of focusing on one thing, kind of enjoying being all over the place for a little bit.
Um, and just actually didn't ask you, but where are you? Where are you located? I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh, okay, cool. Nice. Do you like it out there? I absolutely love it. Yeah, I've been here for a long time nice. and plan to be here for a long time longer. Um, last question, I think, which is a question I ask all, all the guests, which is what are you reading? What am I reading right now? I'm reading a book called The Artist's Way, uh, great, which great is book, basically, yeah. yeah, you've read it. So it's, yeah, it's, camera, yeah. I, I started it a few years ago and had the simultaneous thoughts of this is completely resonating and feels important and feels like it's like onto something that matters for me. And mm -hmm. I am so deep in a different mode of thinking that this feels like a chore. I can't do it. And I, I put it aside being like, I will come back to this as soon as I have, uh, have the space to, to take it seriously. And so uh, I now have the space to take it seriously. So I'm, I'm in the middle of that. Do you find that there's um there's crossover between what Julia Cameron is saying in that book and what you're doing on the web three side of things? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think, I think what, what always blew my mind, like the kind of the first time experiencing that book. And again, now is like, it feels so easy and obvious and natural. And that it almost feels like, wow, we must've worked really hard to make a, a world where this is, where this is not flourishing. Right. Where like, <laughs> all it takes is like a little time on your own and like some journaling without any structure and a little bit of guidance. And all of a sudden, like these ideas are pouring out. It's like, wow, what a shame that like that's that we need a book to tell us that. And that that's like, that's not just the default. Um, and so I guess one of the things I see is like, it feels, I think one of the things that pulls me to this whole space more than anything is like, there's very little bullshit. It's like, there's, there's no place where work hours matter. There's no place where like the people are doing kind of performance. It's very like everyone's a free agent and, and kind of flexible. And after being in a, in like what became a bit of a large organization for a bit where Scribe is very good with no work theater and flexibility and all of that, but it's still an organization that kind of has, it, it feels like there's, there's a cadence of like the beast moving forward. And there's something that feels really liberating and creative and kind of being like uh, more of that like free agent that's still a part of communities. Um, and so, yeah, it feels there's something in this space where it feels like if I if I dropped the artist way in the hands of a bunch of people who worked at Fortune 500 companies, I think very few would get through it or 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 kind of like see Open the it. power of it. And it yeah. feels like in this space, there's a lot more of that creative energy and flexibility and like blending of creativity and personal work and and work work and all that into one big thing of life yeah so yeah julia cameron in that book she she basically builds the system around two different activities one is writing in the morning um anything that comes to your mind like it doesn't matter it could be like completely trivial silly but it's got to be i think two pages or three pages um and then the other thing is what she calls an artist date you take yourself on a date by yourself, nobody else to do something you wouldn't otherwise do that is really for your soul, your spirit, like the, for your for your inner peace or happiness. Um, so I said it was the last question, but maybe this is the last question. Do you do the artist date? Because that's the one thing I don't do. I do the pages, the morning pages every day, but I don't do the date. Yes, I do. Um, nice. Yeah, I found... Especially I've, I've got a, a 
two and a half year old daughter and a six month old son. So there can be lots of like, oh, wow. <laughs> not a lot of like solo quiet time. Uh, and so even just like, yeah, a nice walk on the water or go rock climbing is like, all right, I got a little, uh, a little time that like, just feels like what came up and what feels right right now. And I'm going to go do that instead of thinking about everyone else. Very cool. Um, thank you, Zach, for, for joining us. This has been really interesting. If people want to learn more about what you're doing or just to connect or, or whatever, what have you, where would they find you? Yeah, I, uh, I tweet infrequently at Zach Obron and I write a newsletter even more infrequently at <laughs> obron.com. All right. So, uh, you can, you can project your thoughts into the ether and maybe Zach right. will catch them, but in the yeah. meantime, thank you. This has been really illuminating. I think, um, it's a great starting point. I think that that's the point here is that we're not, we're, we're still at the very beginning of, of all this, both on the conceptual philosophical side of things and on the technical side, which means this is a really exciting time to dive into these things and to start learning and exactly what you're doing. So thanks for lending us your insight. Thanks, Ashley. It was fun. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.